uh, City Bible Talks, has, CBT has a new meaning, City Bible Talks. And we're going to kick off uh, tonight by singing together. So uh, please stand together. We're going to open our evening together by singing a hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King. of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing, Alleluia, Alleluia, thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam, oh praise him, oh praise him. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Thou rushing wind that art so strong, ye clouds that sail in heaven long. Oh, praise Him, Alleluia. Rejoice, ye lights of evening, find a voice. Oh, praise him, oh, praise him. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Thou flowing water, pure and clear.
Thank you. Please take a seat. <clears throat> Once again, a very good evening and very warm welcome to the first the inaugural uh, City Bible Talks, uh, co-organized, uh, brought to you by Clang Valley Bible Conference and Equip Gospel Ministries. This platform has been uh, organized in order to uh, equip and encourage brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who work or live or study right at the heart of the, the city of Kuala Lumpur. Indeed, our objective of providing this platform, of organizing this, is to encourage one another to dig more deeply into the Word of God so that we can indeed grow as we apply the gospel into all areas of our lives, that the light of Christ will truly shine forth in us and through us and fill this city so that more will come to a saving knowledge of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah. If you are not familiar with who Equip Gospel Ministry or who KVBC Trust is, may I invite you that after our time together to uh, stop by uh, one of the tables at the, at, uh, at the hall, next uh, adjacent reception hall, just to uh, find out a little bit more about what these two ministries are all about. You will be able to find resources, coming events, so on and so forth. All basically are designed to encourage and equip you uh, in, in your understanding um, of God uh, through His Word. If you do know who KVBC and Equip uh, is, uh, can we also encourage you to stop by, to say hello to the volunteers, to also pick up resources that hopefully you can also share with others so that more will also benefit from resources which are available to them. Okay, can I just encourage you to do that after this meeting? Uh, but for tonight, uh, our program is actually quite simple. Uh, tonight and tomorrow, uh, uh, our uh, guest speaker, uh, William Taylor, will be bringing us through God's Word and consider why work yeah, has been revolutionized uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, how is that? We will hear from him uh, shortly. But uh, tonight, he's going to give us the first talk, and then tomorrow morning, two more talks, and then after lunch tomorrow, he will conclude with a fourth talk. Um, if you are new to this uh, location, um, very important information, the toilets, uh, you can exit through this uh, door, and then the toilets are straight through the hall to your left. Okay, both the men and ladies are over there. And there's also, if, if uh, as a water cooler there, you can refill your water bottles, so on and so forth. And I think there's also some refreshment. Some of you may have already uh, uh, had some before this meeting or after the meeting. You can also help yourself to some of the refreshment that's been prepared. Now, let's take a moment to welcome our guest speaker, uh, Reverend William Taylor. Good evening, William. Okay, it's lovely to be here, and hello, everybody. William, you're from another great city, the city of London. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how great it is, really. It's a pretty godless place, to be honest. <laughs> yes, and your church is right at the heart of this city. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this church? Yeah, sure. So St. Helens Church, um, well, the, the, there is a... There, there is a glass building called the Gherkin in London, and uh, it's kind of shaped like a gherkin, and it's a bit of a landmark. 
and that is right next to St Helens. And St Helens is in the middle of the business district of London, and I suppose between three and 400,000 people come to work within one square kilometre of St Helens every weekday of the working week. Mm, interesting. Uh, William, I understand that you have not always lived in London. Actually, you didn't grow up in a city. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? I grew up on a farm deep in the uh, west part of Cornwall. Um, the, the, that part of England was very, very undeveloped when I was growing up. We were probably about 30 or 40 years behind the rest of the country. And so I grew up farming, um, you know, feeding sheep, feeding cattle, cleaning out the pigs with a fork and... Uh, and uh, basically doing a lot of that sort of work. So all of our holidays were spent working on the farm in uh, manual labor. You call that holiday? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so when you're farming, you know, everybody knows that anybody who's on the farm is free labor, and that was us. Okay, uh, you can find out more a little bit about the farm, farming life from William uh, after uh, the meeting. Um, tonight, you're going to share with us, you're going to commence your talks on revolutionary work. Can you share with us a little bit about uh, what kind of work you have been involved with? Well, for, um, for, from the age of uh, 21, I suppose, I, was in, I, was, uh, I joined the British Army. So I was in the Army for five, six, seven years, something like that, five years full-time. Um, and uh, that, that was the work I did then. And then people said that uh, they thought I could teach the Bible in a way that other people could understand. And I've always been convinced that for every Christian, it's our responsibility to maximize the gifts that God has given us for the advance of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so from, from the time that those sort of gifts in Bible teaching were developing, um, it became a very uh, clear and important priority for me to think about whether I should do that in a paid capacity. And uh, eventually I made the decision to, to teach uh, the Bible full time. We are certainly very glad uh, uh, for the gifts that God has given you uh, to teach the Word, and we are benefiting from it. Uh, when you joined the army at 21, were you already a Christian then? I was just, I've been a Christian for perhaps two or three years, so very new Christian, yeah. So, so how did you end up in the army, and, and, uh, and what are some of the differences uh, between serving in the army and serving in the church? It's not very obvious to us what's the difference. Well, I, I think um, there are many similarities in terms of being a Christian. So uh, anybody who becomes a Christian is called to be a Christian full-time wherever they are. So I never saw myself as a soldier and a Christian. I saw myself as a Christian who just happened to be a soldier. And now I'm a Christian who happens to be teaching the Bible full-time. But uh, so in many ways, there are a lot of similarities. Um, I was seeking to be Christian uh, with the gifts that God had given me and to use them and maximize them as best I could in the place that God had put me at that time. And I think that's the responsibility of every Christian in whatever place. So one of the things I'm going to be saying about work is that we need all of us to see ourselves as full-time Christian workers, every single one of us. And you may be working uh, in, I don't know, financial services, or you may be working for yourself in a business that's your own business. You may be working in nursing or doctor, or you may be working on a building site. 
You may be working as a secretary or something like that, but you're a full-time Christian worker wherever you are. The only difference between me and you is I get paid for it. We are all full-time Christian workers. That may be quite revolutionary to some of us here. Well, it shouldn't be, because the Christian gospel, uh, once you're called to follow Jesus, you follow, follow him first and foremost full-time. There's not one moment when I'm not following him and another moment that I'm not, or one moment when I'm not working for him and another moment when I'm not. I'm working for him first and foremost full-time. And uh, my responsibility, wherever God has put me, is to be engaged in his work which is speaking to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I may be doing that in my office, or I may be doing that in, uh, you know, on the factory floor or on the building site, as there are people just opposite us here. But if I'm a Christian, I'm a full-time gospel worker. Mm. Thank you, William. Um, we're going to hear from you uh, very shortly, but uh, just before you go, any final word of encouragement that you'd like to uh, give to all of us here, since this is... You've already been in Kuala Lumpur for almost a whole week. Surely you have something to say to all of us here? Well, it must be time for a meal, I would imagine. I mean, <laughs> I, I, sp I spoke to, uh, there, there was a 17-year-old girl. I said, what is it that characterizes and typifies Malaysians? You know, how do you, you can, you can tell me what you think typifies the English, but what is it that typifies Malaysians? And she said, we're hungry. We're hungry. And that was it. No, but I, you know, when we, God has put us in these cities, I mean, I don't like cities particularly, I'm a farm boy, I much prefer it in the country, but God has put me in a city to serve him there and to use the gifts that God has given me in the city in which he's placed me, which happens to be London. God has put you in this city, maybe you love the city, well that's absolutely marvellous, if you do, I'm so pleased, but you have very special opportunities when you're in the city because you have a mission field that is not only national, but also international. And when you start to see yourself as a full-time Christian worker in this city, wow, the opportunities are huge. And God will have put you next to people from every part of Asia, in your office, wherever you happen to work, you've been put there and you've got a whole mixture of people. And it's an unusual time in the history of the world where people from across the world are relatively, I mean, there's some exceptions, but relatively free and easy to move, which means actually our cities have become international mission fields. And if I can make that revolution in my thinking about who I am and what God wants me to do for him, which is to work full time for him, then you can be an international missionary in your oil company or your office or your hospital or whatever. I mean, that London hospitals couldn't function with international, without the international workers. So you go up in a lift in any one of our hospitals and the other 10 people in the lift will almost certainly be from different countries to me you know, in London. That means there are nine different nationalities there from all over Europe. Well, perhaps not in a couple of weeks' time, but anyway, once we got out of Europe, but, but uh, you know, from all over, from all over the world. So once I begin to see myself as maximizing everything God has given me for the sake of the gospel, which is what he wants you to do, then, wow, in a city, what opportunity you have when you start to think of yourself as called by God to serve him full time. That's it. Okay. Thank you, William. Yeah, uh, thank you for your word of encouragement. We're going to hear from William shortly, but certainly, indeed, may God enlarge our vision of who he is and where he has placed us in. 
Um, just before William comes to speak, uh, we're going to hear from uh, uh, Tim, Tim, uh, Tim, who is the Ministry Director of Equip Gospel Ministries. He's going to sh introduce some book resources which are available to us uh, throughout this conference. Oh, good evening. It's great to be with you as well. Now, there's uh, lots of uh, great books you would have seen uh, out in the hall back there. And I'll just uh, start by saying, actually, many of these books are very difficult to get uh, in Malaysia. Uh, many of these books I'm about to recommend, uh, they might be the only copies that are in KL at the moment. So don't leave them there for too long. Uh, we've got four of uh, William's books that we've uh, brought in uh, specially. The first one is the title of uh, this, uh, this, these talks, Revolutionary uh, Work. Uh, I'm sure William's got more to say than he'll be able to get through in just one day. You can get the full story in this book. Uh, and he's got another one here on revolutionary sex. This covers uh, on uh, God's pattern in creation. Uh, it covers on sex and the gospel, same gender, sex, uh, singleness and marriage, and so on. And these books are an absolute steal. They are, I don't know why we're selling them at this price, but they're 15 ringgit each. And uh, <laughs> you might want to run out and buy them before the talk, otherwise they probably won't remain. Uh, the, other, the other two that uh, William's written is, there's one on uh, the book of Philippians, on uh, gospel partnership, and this one on uh, Matthew's gospel, the end of Matthew's gospel, living in the light of the arrival of the king. How does Jesus' return affect the way we think about, well, our work, our life, uh, everything that we, that we do? Okay, now there's a, a bunch of other books about work. Uh, this one is uh, by Vaughan Roberts. It's called God's Big Design. It's really thinking of what's the purpose of life. Uh, it works through those early chapters of, of Genesis, and it's got a great chapter in there uh, about God's purpose for work. I'd highly recommend it. Now, this one, The Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness. Is anyone here that feels busy? If you're free, then feel free to volunteer with Equip, you know, <laughs> or KVBC. You can let me know later on. Uh, the Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness. We always feel busy. We're always looking for more time uh, in the week and so on. Uh, how should the, the Christian feel about this? And how does the gospel liberate us uh, from that enslavement, really, that we often feel to the busyness of life. Well, one of the reasons we often are so busy is uh, because we've probably made uh, work or something else an idol in our life, and uh, Tim Kellis uh, addresses this in this book, Counterfeit Gods. Uh, it's a great book uh, which shows that actually the things that we often make our replacement gods apart from Jesus, uh, they do enslave us and take the joy out of life. Counterfeit Gods helps us to put uh, Jesus right back. Uh, in the center. Now, just two last books to mention quickly. We're going to uh, hear this, uh, uh, the, the mind shift that we need to have about our work, seeing it as a place of, of ministry. And one of the greatest things you can do is read the Bible one-to-one -one, uh, with someone in your workplace. And uh, this book, One-to-One -one by uh, David Helm, really gets you started on, on doing that in a simple way. I'd highly recommend that. And finally, uh, some of us may uh, feel the challenge as we, uh, as we listen to the talks tonight and we're thinking about maximizing our, 
our, our ministry in the workplace to think, well, is God calling me to even more than that? Calling, rethinking about ministry. Uh, is God calling me to give up my job? What does calling actually mean? What does the Bible mean when it talks about calling? Is it the way that we usually think about it, etc.? This is a great book to make us think uh, about those, those questions. Now, there's lots of other books. Do come and check them out. Uh, later on this evening. Thank you, Tim. Lots of goodies for us to check out after the meeting. Uh, we're going to hear from God's Word now. Uh, please uh, have your Bibles uh, open to Genesis 1. If you didn't manage to bring a Bible, there's Bibles. Uh, there are Bibles right in front of you in the pew. Um, we're going to turn to God's Word, Genesis 1. Uh, can I invite our tree to come and read for us. Genesis chapter 1, the first book in the Bible, easy to find, and chapter 1, probably the second page. If you're all ready, it's um, starting in verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to verse 31. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw, that all, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. I'm going to pray before William comes and speaks to us. Speak, O oh Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen in us, in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Lord, be with William as he brings your word to us. And may your word, Lord, embolden us to do revolutionary work at our workplaces. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you so much, uh, Chui and Kei Ho, and uh, Tim as well. And thank you so much for coming out this evening. 
and it's been a real joy to be here in Kale again for a second time. And uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed the Malaysian food over these last few days, and I'm going home to uh, go on a very serious diet. Now, um, these four talks are very much part of a set, and I want to say if you're unable to be here tomorrow, then uh, I would encourage you very strongly to get hold of the recordings so that you hear all four of them, because it won't be complete if you've only heard 25%. There is a sitcom in England which went global and it's known across the world called The Office and David Brent was one of the key actors in it and he has this to say, you grow up, you work for half a century, you get a golden handshake, you rest a couple of years and then you're dead. Steve Jobs of Apple. Sometimes life's going to hit you in the head with a brick. The only thing that kept me going is that I loved what I did. You've got to find what you love. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking. Don't settle. Richard Branson, a virgin. You've got to follow your dream. And now David Brooks of the New York Times the mantra of modern 21st century middle class, that we should be true to ourselves, follow our passion, that our future is limitless, is garbage advice. So who's right? What is work really all about? There's no doubt that jobs is right. Work will fill a large part of your life. You and I, if we travel to work, and especially if we travel to work in Kuala Lumpur, and uh, work in most of the spheres represented here this evening, I guess we'll spend at least 50% of our waking week traveling to and engaging in work. So there's no doubt that Steve Jobs is right. There's no doubt that Brent is right. We work for half a century, we rest a couple of years, then we're dead. One friend of mine in the city of London was at one stage vice president of Lloyd's Insurance, the largest insurance market in the world, and he was quite literally a household name in the world of insurance. Very shortly after I arrived as rector of St. Helens, he took me up into the top of the Lloyd's building just a couple of years after he'd retired. As we came back down out of his office, the, his old office, he paused for a moment and he said this, three years ago today, everybody would have recognized me, everybody would have greeted me, everybody would have known me. Today, I'm a nobody. And he was right. Virtually nobody had greeted him as we descended the escalators. And so, there is no doubt that Brooks is right. The idea that I should be true to myself, follow my dream, yeah, it's a middle class class mantra, but vast percentages, probably 90% of the working world, has absolutely no choice at all as what they do at work. They cannot do anything other than what their parents did at work. They're restricted to what the local factory prescribes or the major employer dictates. Not only so, but the sense that I should fulfill my potential at work is utterly enslaving. I sat down next to a young graduate just a couple of years ago after giving a talk on fear in the city. The young boy wasn't a Christian. He was one year out of university 
And so I said to him, as speakers are wont to do, what are you most frightened of? He said, not fulfilling my potential. Poor slave. How then are we to assess the way we spend 50, 60% of our waking hours for 50 years of our living life? Over these two days, we begin a four-talk series on the subject of work. It is an unusual series. My normal practice is to work through books of the Bible, or at least sections of books of the Bible, and I do that for a reason. The Bible was written in books. And as we understand what the author of one book has to say, so we understand what God has to say. And as we hop around from book to book to book and passage to passage to passage, so we fail to pay careful attention to what the author has to say, and too quickly we find the preacher himself setting the agenda rather than God. So the most healthy way of studying the Bible and being taught the Bible in your church or in your Bible study group is by studying books of the Bible. But this set of talks is unusual, and I want us to do what I very, very, very rarely do and have a topical series, and I'm doing that because Cahoe asked me to. <laughs> so in this talk, we were made to work. In the next talk, God will frustrate your work. You must be here tomorrow morning. <laughs> the next talk, number three, working for God, and the final talk, God's work. Now that's what really matters. So you've got to be here tomorrow evening. In this talk, what I want to do is simply to lay some foundations as we go back to Genesis 1. And here we're going to see the dignity of work, the responsibility of work, the necessity of work. And what we're going to do is look at each of these in turn and then draw two conclusions that I think you may agree are somewhat revolutionary. First, work and its dignity, the dignity of work. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we discover that God himself is a worker. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, the God of the Bible, unlike the pantheon of Greek gods or Eastern deities, gets his hands dirty. And since God made man in his image, his creation, humanity, with its two separate genders, its two separate genders, male and female, model the image of God in his world. And God entrusts to his humanity the task of work in his world. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. God could quite easily have delivered this created order with everything complete and in order. All scientific discoveries already made, 
all technological advances already in existence, all peoples of the earth already placed, all houses and hedges and buildings and paintings and plantations and concert halls and concertos and noodle bars, all in place. But he didn't. God is a worker. He gets his hands dirty. He made the universe. And God entrusted his work to his people, man and woman, to work in like manner. Thus, God himself dignifies the stuff of our daily life. Remember, Jesus, in John chapter 5, verse 17, my father is working to this day, and I too am working. Remember, Jesus himself worked with his hands. He was a carpenter. Paul worked with his hands. He was a tanner and a tent maker. And of course, this makes so much sense of our lives. Why do we love to create, to invent, to build, to organize, to order, and so forth? Why do we get such satisfaction from a job well done? Why is unemployment such a blight? Why, even when it's something as simple and everyday as cleaning the house or cooking a meal or filling out a form, are we pleased when we have completion? There's a joke in our family. We often go down to the family farm for our holidays, and there's a joke there that really there are only three topics of conversation as far as dad is concerned what dad is planning to build, what dad is building, and look at what dad has built. <laughs> so whether it's show and tell at school, or the celebratory party after the completion of a deal, or the grand opening of some new building, or simply come and look at what we've been up to, we know that there is something intrinsically dignified about work we were made to work. And enforced or unending leisure is such a bore. Now, as we progress through this series over these next four talks, we must hold on to this first point and the second and the third. This is foundational. And you will be tempted, as you get to talk three and talk four, to say to me, oh, you don't really value work. Remember the first talk, the dignity of everyday labor. And over the next talks, we're going to have a great deal to say about the futility and frustration of work. This talk, work is good. The next talk, work is grim. And we're going to see tomorrow morning that we cannot escape the consequences of our human rebellion against God and therefore work in God's world following our rebellion is under God's judgment, is always tainted and spoiled, deliberately so by God. God will spoil your work. Then we're going to see that God has in his grace redeemed us and that there's a far greater work to do for all of us to be concerned with than simply the labor of everyday life. But as we go through tomorrow's talks, 
please remember this evening's talk and don't come giving me a hard time that I've got a downer on work. The dignity of labor. We still live in God's creation. God's new creation will be a place of work. And it is a high and honorable and godly and good thing to work. So on Monday morning, as the alarm goes off at 5.30, and you leap from your bed, work is good. <laughs> this is a God, godly and dignified thing to be doing. I was made to work. And on Monday lunchtime, as the boss lands a heap of papers on your desk, or as an avalanche of emails flood into your inbox, or as the senior staff nurse hands a list of tasks, or as the lecturer or teacher or whatever announces assignment, the dignity of work. I was made for this. <laughs> Thank God. The responsibility of work. In verses 28 through 29 of Genesis 1, we see God entrust to Adam and Eve the imaged responsibility of ruling over his creation. God is a ruler and God is a worker. Humanity is to rule and to work under him. It is a delegated task. We are accountable, the responsibility of work. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This created order then, I think we'll read to verse 31. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food, and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw all that he made, and it was very good. There was morning and evening, the sixth day. So this created order is ours on trust. We are to rule over it. We are to care for it. We are to develop it. We are to design within it. And in chapter 2, verse 15, we find the same responsibility entrusted to Adam. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So then our work is to be conducted responsibly under God as his sub-regents in his world. This suggests accountability. It explains why Paul tells workers in his letter to the Colossians that they are, they are to labor as unto the Lord. It may be that the legal firm for which you work, the firm of lawyers, rip it, rip off, shred it, and fudge, are your employers, and they pay the monthly, weekly, or daily salary. But you and I, working in God's creation, are under his command. We are working under God in whatever area of work we are engaged. 
there is then a degree of responsibility attached to whatever work we're doing. Indeed, we're going to see in just a moment that each of us has been assigned a position by God. It may not be the position we like or the position we enjoy or a position that we're necessarily gifted at. But when Paul speaks about being assigned a position by God in 1 Corinthians 7, one of the positions he's speaking about is that of a slave and another that of the unmarried state of singleness. So we may not desire the position we've been given, but God has given it. And God holds us accountable and responsible within it. And as we come through into the New Testament, we find this responsibility extended such that our work is designed for the benefit and well-being of others. There is a responsibility to God and to others. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians and chapter 4. And as soon as I get there, I shall give you a page number, so don't panic. Ephesians chapter 4, page 1176 and verse 28. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Notice what the apostle says to the redeemed individual here. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Turn over to page 1194, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. One one nine four. 1 Timothy 5, 8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Look across the page to chapter 6 and verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. These passages all come in the context of God's church, his people, exhibiting what he has done in saving us, and so showing to a watching world what a good thing it is to belong to God. As we begin to conduct ourselves with a sense of responsibility and concern for others, we become a beacon to the watching world. The thief, having turned from thieving, is to work. Why? So that he can share with others. The family man or woman is to work. Why? So that he or she can share with the needy elderly, the young or the sick in the family. The person who has been given much by God because they are wealthy are to use their wealth, not in arrogance, as the wealthy so often do, but in humility, sharing with others. So there is responsibility in work. It is dignified, a dignity to work, responsibility to work. There's a responsibility to work given to us by God, 
there's a responsibility within work, the way we work, and there's a responsibility beyond work to others as I use what I earn for the well-being of others around me. We are to work and care for what God has entrusted to us in his creation. We are to work and consider others as we use what God has given to us in our work. Indeed, in Reformed theology, work is considered to be part of my love of my neighbor. It's part of my duty to love my neighbor. I work. Once again, what a transformation this will bring to Monday morning. Perhaps you're a research technician. Thank you, Lord, that you've given me this job and that I am able to take part in ordering this creation of yours. Perhaps you're a security guard. Thank you, Lord, for entrusting me with this job. I may find it dull from time to time, but thank you that you've given me work to do for the benefit of myself under your command, for the benefit of my family, and for others whom I'm able to bless. Maybe you're some technological whiz kid. Almost certainly you are if you're under 30 and living in Malaysia. But thank you, Lord, for enabling me to help others so that their little world can go round in indecipherable circles. Once again, we're going to have to be careful how we take this as the series develop. But I want to ask you to make sure you come back for the rest of the series so you don't take this and head in the wrong direction with it. Because the mandate that is given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 is radically altered after the fall and the flood. Let me say that again. If you forget everything else, remember this. The mandate that is given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 is radically altered after the fall and the flood. Following the fall and following the flood, when God repeats the original command given to Adam and says something along the same lines to Noah, we no longer find the command to subdue the earth. There is now hostility between the animals and Noah and his children. And rules have to be put in place to protect them all from each other. So please make sure that you pay very, very careful attention to the first talk tomorrow morning as we explore this. Because you will find that many theologians, particularly in the Reformed tradition, and especially in the Dutch Reformed tradition, many theologians jump from the creation mandate of Genesis 1 straight to the New Testament and us, and fail to notice the change in the mandate following the fall, with the result that they essentially buy in to the garbage advice of the 21st century. More on that tomorrow. Nonetheless, because we inhabit God's created universe and verse, and because as humans he has entrusted to us the dignified role of workers, there is a responsibility, the dignity of work 
and the responsibility of work. A word to you if you are out of work. What a horrible season it is. And I've been alongside men and women in the City of London who've been out of work, sometimes for as much as two years at a stretch. And of course, it's a miserable time because we were made to work. And any of you here who've been out of work or are out of work know just how miserable it is. And it's a chance for the church family genuinely to care for you. But may I say gently that there's still plenty of work you can usefully do. And if you come to talks three and four, perhaps some ideas of the sort of things you might be doing will occur to you. But now, having looked at the dignity and the responsibility, we can consider the necessity of work. For in Genesis chapter 1, Adam and Eve, keep a finger in uh, wherever you are, perhaps 1 Timothy, because we'll be back in that direction in a moment. But you can see that in Genesis chapter 1, Adam and Eve are to work for their food. Thus God said, verse 29, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I also give green plants for food. And it was so. So God gives to Adam and Eve plants for their nourishment. And God And there is a sense, even here, that work is needed if life is to be sustained, the necessity of work. Now flick forward to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So we're on page 1188. 1188. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Turn the page to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and have a look at verse 6. You'll see the heading that the NIV has put there, a warning against idleness verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 3. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, We worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down 
and earn the food they eat. We should make the Apostle Paul the Chancellor of the Exchequer of Great Britain. In these passages, Paul is addressing the church in Thessalonica, where Christians have become so fixed on the return of Christ that they are using Jesus' return as an excuse not to labor at all. And Paul corrects them both by his command in verses 10 to 12, isn't it striking, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat, and what he says in verse 12 and 13, I've missed it, sorry, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat, and then by his example in verses 6 to 9. Work, then, is necessary for our food and well-being. Work is necessary for the provision of our families and the families of others. Work is necessary for our generosity to those amongst us who are genuinely in need. And work is necessary for the setting apart of Bible-teaching church leaders so that we can be properly taught from the Scriptures. A number of years back, in the early 1990s, some Australian friends came to stay in London and they found that many in our churches had developed highly romanticized and sentimental, unbiblical views on work. And one of them said, rather bluntly and very aptly, you, why do you work? You work to feed your face. Now that view came in for some criticism, particularly from those who mishandle Genesis 1. Isn't it rather reductionistic? Surely there is dignity and responsibility to work. Yes, which is why I've suggested there is dignity and responsibility in work. But what do we find the New Testament saying? He who does not work shall not eat. Why do you work? So you can eat. If you will not work, you should not eat. You work so you can support your family and do good to others. You work as a key part of loving your neighbor. And if only the whole nation had this view in the United Kingdom, rather than being neo-communists, we might find that the Chancellor and the Department of Work and Pensions would have a far more straightforward job on budget day. Martin Luther, in his larger catechism, catches this beautifully on his section on prayer when he tackles the phrase in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. I mean, what a great thing to be praying before you head out for work. I use the Lord's Prayer pretty much every single morning of my life, using each of those headings as a heading, a bullet point, and filling out prayers around it. Give us today our daily bread. Yes, spiritual bread, so that I can serve you today, physical bread so that I can eat. And Luther encourages us to pray not only for ourselves and our own work, but also for the work of others around us and for people in all areas of life so that we are properly fed, work is done, and so forth. The dignity of work. The responsibility of work, responsibility to God, responsibility to those closest to us, and responsibility further afield, and the necessity of work. Now I want to close with two observations. First, there is then to be no snobbery 
when it comes to work. Do you understand the word snobbery, Keho? You know what it means? We all know what snobbery means. Yes? If there is dignity to work, and if there is responsibility and necessity in work, and if all work is dignified, delegated, and designed by God, then it is not that one area of work is somehow of higher value or more important or more significant than any other. I wonder if you believe that. If all work is dignified by God, then it is entirely unchristian to suggest that one area of work is more dignified, more significant, more important, of greater value than another. Does this not challenge radically the view of work that governs so much of our Western world? And may I say, after one week of observation, our Eastern world as well. And this idea was radically countercultural in Paul's own day. And though it may be a view that has been passed on to some of you young ones by your ungodly parents, that being a doctor or a lawyer or a self-employed businessman is somehow of greater value than being a laborer, it is an ungodly view. Listen to Homer, the Greek author, speaking of work as something beneath anyone from the higher classes, particularly manual labor. Homer, not Homer Simpson, Homer. <laughs> Typical, the Aussies in the front row, immediately they're thinking of Homer. Oh, it wasn't, yeah, no, it wasn't the Aussies, it was the Malaysians behind them. Okay, we're not talking about Homer Simpson, we're talking about the, about the great Greek author, Homer. Quote, Okay, settle down, quote. The gods, listen to this, the gods cherish the elite. The gods require that slaves should ensure leisure for the elite, that craftsmen should surround the elite with conveniences and luxuries, which must always be new. There's the pagan world. Listen to Aristotle, 350 BC, writing in his politics, quote, the citizen of the state must not lead the life of mechanics or tradesmen, for such a life is ignoble and against all virtue. Neither must they care for animals. I find that particularly offensive, being a farmer's son. Neither must they care for animals, since leisure is necessary both for the development of virtue and the performance of political duties, mechanics or any other similar class should have no share in the state. There's the pagan view. Our attitudes to labor, and in particular some forms of work, are profoundly influenced by Greek snobbery. And this kind of Greek snobbery concerning work and, work and labor is completely countered by the apostle. Let him work with his hands, says Paul. 
That's why they despised him, because the great apostle was a tanner and worked with his hands, as did the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a carpenter. But you will find everywhere in our universities, in our major cities, even amongst the godless middle classes, this pagan view of work. There's a playwright in Britain called Oscar Wilde. There was a godless playwright. But he captured this very brilliantly in his play, The Importance of Being Earnest, by one of the key, when one of the key characters, Lady Bracknell, says of a particular individual, he has a job. <laughs> and if you've downloaded Downton Abbey, has that reached Malaysia? If you've down, yes, 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 I thought it must have been. Remember the Duchess? You may not have picked this up. The Duchess, the Dowager Duchess. What is a weekend? <laughs> In other words, the, the real people, the people who count, they, they, they don't know what weekends are because they don't work. It's only the peasantry that work. Well, here may be a profound challenge to us, the first profound challenge to us, because I guess, looking around, I don't know, but the vast majority of us will be part of the multicultural middle-class Malaysia. All work is dignified. All work is responsible. All work is good. All work is necessary. Will this not change the way you treat the migrant workers in this country? You may not be able to change the way the state treats them. It'll change the way you treat them, if you're Christian at all. Is there not a great danger in our church culture that we see the lawyer or the architect or the accountant or the doctor as somehow superior because I've got a qualification, I've been to college, then my role is somehow of a higher order. This is to develop our own caste system. It's to develop our own caste system. And when somebody when we ask somebody, well, what do you do for a living, and immediately pigeonhole them and make a value judgment about them, it's the same. So now, let me suggest, I could make a very reasonable case that a plumber or a shelf stacker or a sewage worker or a garbage collector is of greater value in Kuala Lumpur than the medic or the musician or the lawyer. Imagine no plumbing, no garbage collection, no sewage flow. Well, what's of greater value? Or are you just a snob? A, a Christian snob, but a snob nonetheless. So then, if we want to check whether we are a snob about work, were I to be made redundant tomorrow, would I be prepared to work at anything? 
This will impact the way we see everybody around us, won't it? And won't it do good? Observation number one, no snobbishness. Observation number two, closely related, we must not be super spiritual about work. Given that work is good, work is dignified, work is responsible and necessary, we mustn't now be super spiritual about work. And I want to, as we close, to tackle one area in which Christians can fall into a trap of thinking about work in a worldly way, which the Bible does not encourage. And the mistake comes from a misreading of one verse in 1 Corinthians. So perhaps if you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 on page 1161. Oh, no, that's 2 Corinthians 7. Whoops. 1, 1, 4, 7. I want to talk now about the language of vocation for everyday work. Vocation simply means a posh way of talking about calling. Calling. The language, it's the Latin way of talking about calling. Vocation. The language of vocation was used by the reformers in the 16th century Europe to correct a wrong understanding of vicars and priests as having a higher value in God's eyes to anyone else in the work they were doing. It had been suggested that vicars and priests were specially called by God to a higher calling. The reformers argued that everybody has a calling, a vocation that uh, we're all called. All people are of equal value and all work, as it's done with a sense of dignity, responsibility and necessity, is good. Uh, And so the reformers spoke of all people as having a vocation from God. But this language has been taken today, even in the most reformed circles, and you'll find books on, uh, on this, even in, by the, some of the most evangelical authors. This language has been taken today to suggest that God has for you a unique and special calling, that he has fitted you with a particular range of gifts and a personality that means that you and you alone can fulfill the particular calling that you've been given by God, that you're a unique triangular shape. I'm sorry, if you are a unique triangular shape, you're most unusual, I haven't seen anybody here who is, but you're a unique triangular shape and that God wants you to find the triangular shaped hole for you to slot into and that is your calling. Trouble is, the Bible never speaks of work in that way. In fact, it never uses the word calling in that way either to apply to any particular job or any state or station in life in which a person finds themselves. So, there are at least 51 uses of the word call or calling in the New Testament. I have looked at each one of them in uh, my preparation for this series. In 46 cases, the word is used only of the calling to become a Christian. So everyone here who calls themselves Christian has been called. In four cases, the word is used of Christians as being called to be holy. 
So every single one of us here in this room has been called. You've been called to conversion. You've been called to holiness. And that's it. Well, there is one other occasion in which the word calling is used, and that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 20, there on page 1147. Each person should remain, literally it says, in the calling in which they were when God called them in the calling to which God has called you. But the sense here of the word calling, as it is used here, is absolutely not that you are unique and only fitted out by God to be one particular type of person, a management consultant, an accountant, or whatever it happens to be. And you must find that unique calling. No, quite the reverse. Paul's point is that when you were called, you may have been a slave or you may have been single. You may have been circumcised. You may have been uncircumcised. He's talking about big brackets of types of people, not specific individual callings to particular posts. He does not forbid progress in our work or changing work, but he does tell us what matters in how we work. And so to suggest that God has a special calling for me with my particular gift range, my particular personality that I have to keep searching until I find it, is to play into the hands of those with the middle-class mantra that not only is possible for a tiny proportion of this world to achieve, but also enslaves us as we engage in an endless pursuit of our dream. Now, when preparing for this series, um, I did a lot of research on people's view on work. You always do, you know, if you're trying to get a hang on a particular topic. I did a lot of work in the Bible, a lot of research on people's views on work. And I came across this quote from the Reverend Anne Wilkinson. Each of us has a vocation, something that allows each of us with our own unique blend of talents, gifts, and skills to flourish something that makes our hearts sing. The challenge is to find it with our own song. Now, Anne Williams is saying basically the same as Steve Jobs. The only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, just keep looking. Don't settle. She's saying basically the same as Richard Branson. Follow your dream. And the New York Times author David Brooks is right in his commencement lecture to describe that kind of suggestion as, quote, garbage advice. You try taking that to the building site where people are doing dignified work opposite St. Anne's Church, responsibly and necessarily and saying to somebody who's sweating their life out on that building site, you have a vocation, something that allows you to fulfill your unique blend of talents, gifts, and skills, and enables you to flourish, something that will make your heart sing. The challenge is to find it with your own song. It is absolutely stupid, godless, pagan advice from the Reverend Anne Williamson. 
No, God says work is good. There's a dignity to work. We are responsible in our work. It's necessary that we work. And you will find that God has assigned to us any number of positions. For many of us, we will find ourselves saying, do you know, I really don't think I'm at all fitted to the kind of work I'm doing. I don't feel I have the skills and the gifts, and I think I'd be much better doing a job somewhere else. For others of us, we may be, just maybe, through God's extraordinary goodness, have stumbled across something we really love. But don't worry, God will frustrate your work. (laughs) And for the rest of this series, I'm going to encourage us to pursue the calling of God, not this really rather pagan, unbiblical understanding of vocation that some of us will have grown up with. And the calling of God is to turn to him in repentance of faith. And then wherever we happen to find ourselves, to live in a godly way, maximizing the gifts he's given us for the only work that really matters, the work of God, the advance of the gospel. Well, um, I wish I could take names and make sure that you're here tomorrow morning because I'm fearful some of you may sneak off. It is part of a series, and I do hope that you'll be here in the morning to hear the next part of this work series. Might I lead us in prayer? Our gracious Father, we praise you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. What is man that you are mindful of him, that you've made us in your image. We thank you that you yourself are a worker, that you, our Father, are working to this day. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who came into the world and humbled himself to work with his hands for the great apostle who spent his days tanning hides. We pray, our Father, that you would grant us true repentance. If, if, if we have in imbibed the world's views and thought in a godless way about work, please grant us real, deep repentance. May our churches be places that see all work the way you see it. And I pray that you would redirect our energies to the great work of your gospel for your name's sake. Amen. Thank you, William, for kicking us off this evening by bringing us back to the beginning and indeed throughout Scripture. Um, That God himself, a worker, and to allow him to shape our understanding of what is the work that he has entrusted to us. Uh, If you have questions from tonight's talk, or you even have general questions about the whole idea of work, especially as Christians, how we ought to be thinking about working, can I encourage you to jot them down? Uh, Tomorrow we will give you a a phone number whereby you can send a text message or WhatsApp your questions to, or you can jot down your questions on a slip of paper. 
we will also provide a box whereby you can drop your question in, into the box because uh, after lunch tomorrow, uh, we have a question and answer time whereby William will be able to respond to some of your questions. So if you have a question from tonight, can I, can I encourage you to uh, write it down right now because by tomorrow you will forget it. Yeah. But some of your questions probably will be answered in either talks two, three or four, but it's okay. Just jot down the question anyway. Okay, so um, that's the first announcement. Part of the purpose of uh, putting together this platform, uh, uh, City Bible uh, Talk, is also to encourage brothers and sisters, Christians who are working in the city, to also uh, have opportunity to actually come under God's word together, but also encourage and fellowship one another in prayer together. So how about we just take a moment uh, to also uh, pray and consider what God has been saying to us this evening thus far. And perhaps I can encourage you to, uh, unless you were very uncomfortable to, uh, of doing so, uh, pray with the person next to you okay, about some of the things that we have heard about uh, tonight. Is there some area in the way we think about work that God is beginning to challenge us? Are there some areas about uh, we're thinking about responsibility or necessity of work that God is beginning to speak to us this evening? Have we, be, have we been very snobbish in the way we've been thinking about work? Have we been actually shaped by unspiritual, ungodly thinking uh, in the way when it comes to thinking about work? How about we just uh, spend a few minutes, pray with the person uh, next to you, or behind you, and after that, I'll close uh, our leaders in the word of prayer together. Let's take a few minutes doing that.
Let us continue to pray. Our gracious God, our Creator, our Maker, our Sovereign Lord, we thank you for speaking to us your word through your servant, William, this evening. Father, forgive us for the often times a lot our thinking about our work, about each other's work, are often shaped by ungodly influences that we've been uh, easily uh, deceived a lot by those things led astray in our thinking. Thank you, O Lord, for bringing us to your word to have a clearer understanding on the dignity, responsibility, necessity of work that you yourself have entrusted to us. We pray that you may continue to encourage us, help us to grow in our understanding what does it mean, O oh Lord? Uh, what does all this mean in our current circumstances as we continue to listen to your word, as we continue to come together under you? May you bless your servant, William, that you may continue to speak your word clearly and that help us also, O oh Lord, to truly hear what you are saying to us and respond to you with growing faith and confidence, joy and thankfulness for everything that you bless us with. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two quick announcements. Uh, tomorrow, our program resumes uh, at 10 a.m. Okay, 10 o'clock in the morning. So you still get your chance to sleep in a little bit. Yep. Um, 10 a.m. we will start sharp tomorrow morning and then we will continue until about 3 o'clock. Yep. So, uh, so we have three more talks. Okay, as William reminded us, this is not it. This is the beginning, but come back tomorrow because there's more that we need to learn from God's Word. Okay, and remember to jot down your questions or tomorrow we'll give you a number to send that in. And as you come back tomorrow, remember to bring your lanyard with you, okay? You can bring them home. Uh, if you really want to, I suppose you can leave them at the table here and then you can pick them up again tomorrow morning. That's fine too. You need your lanyard tomorrow because this is your ticket for lunch. Okay? Is that good incentive? Yes, okay. So if you're like me, Afraid that you'll forget to bring it, I'll probably just leave it on the table as I leave uh, tonight, okay? So remember your lanyards for tomorrow. Uh, and again, Q&A time will be after lunch tomorrow, so come with your questions tomorrow. Uh, thank you all for your kind attention this evening. So uh, as the meeting closes, feel free to again to check out the booths. Uh, at the hall adjacent to this, uh, this place. Uh, so check out the Equip Gospels uh, Ministries uh, booth to find out more about resources for your Bible learning and growing. Check out the KVBC booth 
for other conferences uh, whereby you can also come to settings like this to hear God's Word preached or to learn how to handle God's Word. Uh, and also, don't forget uh, all the wonderful books, especially the 15 ringgit ones. Huh? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a, we get to see who is the loving Christian that will stand back and give others a chance. No, no. Let's go. If we run out, we should be able to bring more, okay? Uh, replenish the stock uh, tomorrow, okay? So feel free to go for it, okay? So after the meeting, please feel free to do so. But now we're going to close uh, by singing together uh, our next hymn. Um, we've been reminded tonight the work that the Lord Jesus did when he was on earth, from his carpenter days, when he worked with his hands, and especially the moment uh, uh, his work on the cross, they were all despised, cons considered of no worth in the eyes of men, but in the eyes of whom, uh, those whom God has opened our eyes, or God's people, his work is absolutely glorious. So as we close with our next hymn, let us ask God indeed to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus himself and let him help us, let him show us what is the dignity, what is the responsibility, what is necessary work that we are to do in his name. Let us please stand as we close together in our hymn. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be coming. Good night and see you tomorrow at 10 o'clock. God bless.